On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Yes, we are back. Welcome to Cricket Unfiltered. I am one of your co-hosts, Andrew Mensel. Friends and enemies call me Menas. Joining me is my co-host, Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? I'm very happy, Menas. And what a lovely innings from Steve Smith last night. I hope you are suitably chastened with your very ill-considered opinion that his position in the Australian T20 side is not secure. He's the first player I'd pick in the T20 side. And I hope you're now um, joining me in, in affirming that. Yeah, I agree. I think he had a lot to do, and he's obviously silenced the doubters. Doubter. Doubters, plural. <laughs> I wasn't the only one with this line of thinking. So, listeners, uh, before we get into our heated debates about cricket, just to let you know what's in the show today, we're going to wrap up the T20s. We're going to hit all the major cricket headlines. Lots of big news since we last recorded. Then we have a special interview with Elise Perry. She's written a new book called Perspective. And then we're going to wrap this all up with the social media segment and one of my favourites, Can't Let It Go. But, Paul, let's get into it. I don't know if you're aware, but I spoke to Tasneem Samarkhan on the last podcast and she was very negative about Pakistan's chances in the Test Series. She thinks they're going to lose 2-0. What do you think? Well... That would be the right kind of guess based on history that um, they, they've only won one time in almost living memory. <laughs> they've won, in ni- won one test match in 95-6. The last one they've won before that was back in 1981-82. These aren't test series. These are single test matches. They've never won a test series in Australia. Pakistani friends would immediately point out that we don't go very well over there either. But the, the, the smart money is that they're going to struggle. And the, the warm-ups that they're having... The sad thing is that compared to other teams that have been here in recent years, these warm-ups, which are pretty poor, aren't actually the worst. It's well, Australia's sh- fielding a pretty competitive side in the CA11. Yeah, it shows how bad the warm-ups have been in the previous years that we can look at these where they've got two red ball games to warm up, a three-day game and a two-day game, and we can say they're actually not as bad as, as might have been the case in the past. But I still don't think it's sufficient, really, if they really cared. This would be a three-test series that have come here and played four games against the States, four four-day competitive games, and I'm just living in a fantasy land. But that would be great if it was that, if it was that way. <laughs> More like living in the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> all right, so Australia have smashed Sri Lanka in the T20 series. They won at 3-0. Davey Warner was unbeaten throughout the series, and uh, I wouldn't think we, we got too much out of that series, Paul, but I think... Since Pakistan have arrived, they've been more competitive in the T20 format. We saw the game at the SCG was rained out, but it looked like it could be a decent game before the rain came. And then uh, the game you spoke about uh, last night, Tuesday night, at Manika Oval, Pakistan made six for 150. Australia chased it down pretty easily, three for 151. Steve Smith, 80 not out of 50 balls. Some outrageous stroke play. But, uh, yeah, the T20 side looks pretty good. Yeah, I think we did get a bit out of the Sri Lanka series. I hope that if Australia ultimately go on to win the World Cup, they can look back as as this was the start of the run. I think that it 
confirmed to everyone that Australia's poor record in international T20 cricket to a large extent has been that we've just deprioritised the format. And now as we're starting to take it seriously, especially at home, we are going to be thumpingly difficult to beat. What about the way the middle order is shaping up for Australia? So Warner Finch at the top, Smith at three. And then we've seen a bit of a change. Obviously, Glenn Maxwell's... um, taking a break from cricket, which we'll talk about later. But in the middle order now is two youngsters, Ben McDermott and Ashton Turner at four and five, and they've gone for Carey at six. Do you like that balance where they're kind of going for an extra bowler and then they've brought in these young T20 specialists? Well, I, I'm really a big fan of Ashton Turner. I would have taken him to, taken him to the 50-over World Cup. Uh, he didn't play all that fluently last night, but the other day he had a couple of very crisp shots and showed a glimpse of his talent. I'm delighted that he's in there getting a go. I'm happy for Ben McDermott to get a go as well. They do need to prove themselves, especially McDermott. Hopefully by the time that the World Cup comes around, Maxwell is back in the side. But I think that the batting order looks very, very powerful. And Kerry at six is probably not bad because you don't need as long a batting lineup in 20 over cricket as you do in 50 over cricket, so having five specialist bats and then a keeper and a couple of all-rounders might actually give Finch more options when they're bowling. Yeah, and most of the bowlers are very handy with the bat as well. That's Stark and Cummins. Uh, Richardson at the moment is in the side that I think probably you and I might not pick him, but he does offer something with the bat, which is which is pretty good. So, as I said, very powerful batting lineup and something that other sides will fear. Yeah, you uh, think that there's been a lost opportunity, though, with perhaps making a more of a tournament uh, in the Southern Hemisphere at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the, these matches, are, I think, are valuable in terms of getting preparation for the, the event in a year's time. They haven't really captured the imagination of the fans. And I just can't help but think, well, we had Sri Lanka here and just a few days later Pakistan were here. Just across the Tasman, England are playing New Zealand. Why not have a five-match Australia and New Zealand hosting T20 series, everyone plays each other once, uh, then you have a, a one-off final, Australia play all their home games in Australia, New Zealand play all their home games in New Zealand, Australia play New Zealand in Australia, I'm sure New Zealand would be happy for that, they want more preparation in the, in the country that the World Cup's going to be in. I think that would have garnered a lot more interest than these kind of um, meaningless, not meaningless, but lacking in a great deal of meaning bilateral series. Yeah, and I even think, you know, if that was too hard to coordinate, just having a tri-series with Australia, Sri Lanka and Pakistan might have been more worthwhile. But I guess from the broadcaster's point of view, the Pakistan v Sri Lanka games are tough sells. So they went for two, three-match series. That was our wrap-up of the T20s. Now onto the week's cricket headlines. The first one is friend of the show, Andrew McDonald who was on just a few episodes ago, is the new Australian assistant coach. I think it's a great hire. Me too. And Menas, your um, foresight was amazing because I think you actually entitled that episode as Australia's possible next coach. So you were pretty much on the money there. Um, I think it's a great hire as well. And I think that the fact that he's only going to do it during the Australian summer is actually a good thing. It's a restriction because... He's got so many other jobs and it's hard to attract coaches to do an assistant job in the national side for an entire year where you spend the entire year on the road and don't get paid all that well. Uh, So I think having him in just for a short period of time will be great. Yeah, so he's still coaching in the IPL and the 100, but he's going to take this role on. So, yeah, as you say, I think that's what really came up about this process was the difficulties in luring good coaching candidates with the financial situation now. So... This is obviously a new problem that there are all these T20 leagues around the world where they pay their coaches pretty well and 
for example, Jason Gillespie, he's coaching at Sussex in the English summer and the strikers in our summer. He's probably earning more than he would if he was the assistant coach of the Australian side and he gets to spend more time at home doing those dual roles. So I think it was quite creative of Cricket Australia to be flexible enough to get the right candidate whether he could be available the whole time or not. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said as well for having uh, different inputs that during the um, the English winter that we just went over to England, I know they weren't necessarily assistant coaches, but Ricky Ponting coming in for four or five weeks, Steve Waugh coming in for four or five weeks, they can come in with great energy and great focus and really do a good job. It's a different situation if you're then going to have to spend the entire year travelling here, there and everywhere um, to be able to just come in and do it in a nice, short, sharp burst. And practically for Andrew McDonald, coaching in two T20 leagues, I mean, the hundreds, not. But that will be good experience leading into a T20 World Cup. He will really understand the format. I've seen a lot of the players play in these leagues, so he'll get a lot of information. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, Justin Langer doesn't need any assistance on T20 because he was so successful at the Scorchers. But generally, as the Australian coach, T20 is your lowest priority. It would be good to get the benefit of someone who's, uh, coaching in this new tournament where there's going to be innovation and coaching in the IPL, the biggest in the world. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great to come into to leading into the, the World Cup. It does leave some vacancies at state level. So Victoria is looking for a new coach. And the defending Big Bash champions, the Renegades, have lost their coach on the eve of the season. And ironically, David Saker, who was the Australian assistant coach, is in the running to take that position. I think it shows that Australia has the national team priority number one and other countries around the world, especially England, could possibly learn from that a little bit. The other cricket headline and a big one, Glenn Maxwell is taking a break from cricket due to mental health issues. And uh, I've heard that what happened was Justin Lang actually noticed that something wasn't quite right with Glenn and went up to him and asked him if he was feeling okay and that sort of brought about this break from cricket. It's, it's quite sad, isn't it, Paul? And obviously we wish him the best, but it's, it's, it's a sad, sad turn of events. Yeah, definitely wish him all the best. The only good that comes out of it is that it, this, these days people are able to... The, the environment is such that you can say that. Um, years ago, Greg Chappell, had he been able to say... I'm really struggling, maybe the underarm incident wouldn't have occurred because he said that that was him mentally shot and and doing that. So, yeah, wish him all the best and um, hope to see him back soon. What it does, though, it highlights a couple of issues. So John Hastings, a former teammate of Maxwell's, said on the radio recently that he's aware that, that Glenn Maxwell engages quite a lot on social media and gets a lot of negative stuff as well. So perhaps, you know, the constant negative stuff he gets on on social media affected him. Yeah, that's an interesting take from John Hastings. It is, uh, although, who knows, you could have um, no bad interactions on social media and you know, mental health problems could still obviously arise. But I know from the limited bad feedback I get on social media, I don't get much because people are pretty nice. Um, and you're not a professional cricketer. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it doesn't make you feel very good. So if you're getting that writ large, it would be difficult. Yeah, what do you think on a sort of theoretical basis, Paul? Do you think as a, a cricketer you're better off Okay, maybe you have to have Twitter for marketing and PR purposes, but would it be something that you should just give to your manager or an agent and say, look, just run my Twitter for me, you know, put generic posts up about, you know, promotional stuff and I'm not going to engage with all the negative negativity on the, the platform? 
think that the difficult thing is, especially for the the new generation of, of cricketers coming through, is that social media for them is just part of life. It would be like asking someone from a, a previous generation to not watch television. Yeah, but I just think like when we go to work during the day, if we make a mistake, you know, Glenn Maxwell does that. He goes to work and he gets out playing a bad shot and then he gets a thousand messages saying you're a Muppet. That's going to affect you more than, you know, if you and I go to work and make a mistake and we come home, we don't get a thousand messages on social media telling us what we did wrong. No, of course. And in an ideal world, you wouldn't be on there and you would just say, I'm just going to focus on the game. But my point is that for, for some people, um, they've grown up with it. It is, part of the, it, it is part of what they do. And so the option of just cutting it off, I think that's a perspective that someone in their teens and 20s would find hard to, hard to comprehend. It also highlights the, the the pressures of the schedule on the modern cricketer, the fact that there's just no breaks to be with your family or really take a break from the game. Oh, it's, a, it's a huge problem, and it's a problem almost unique to cricket. Most other sports do have a defined off-season, but cricket, by its very nature, it's virtually 365 days. It's very, very challenging, and I don't buy the argument that some people have of, oh, well, you know, no one's forcing them to go and play in the IPL. I think that it would be unrealistic to expect a cricketer to turn down the IPL. They only have a finite lifespan. They've got to make the most of their earning potential now. Who knows whether they'll be still playing in two or three years. So you've got to go to the IPL. It would be great if Cricket Australia could carve out a a two-month window where they said Australia will not be playing any international cricket in that period. It's just never going to happen because they just don't have the power to do that. But that's where the complication is. The IPL is when the Australian cricketers are given annual leave. So... You're right, they go to the IPL, they make all this money, but then to turn around a few months later and say we're burnt out. Yeah, but I I think that Cricket Australia need to say that the IPL is not going away and we can't expect... We can't say to people, oh, well, you know, take your leave then, but if you want to go to the IPL, then that's your choice. I think they've got to say no. Um, If we're going to give them leave, it has to be at a time other than the IPL. Maybe it can be on a case-by-case basis where they could say to a certain player, hey, you've been playing for four years now, you've barely had a month off, Let's look ahead and we'll carve out four months. You're going to miss some cricket, but we promise you that you won't be disadvantaged. You're not going to be dropped as a result of it. Spend four months completely away and refresh and recharge, not just mentally, but physically as well. There's probably fast bowlers who are bowling with injuries and suddenly get away from it all. They'll come back um, uh, better than ever before. That would, that would be something that I'd like to see. The next headline, New South Wales are at the top of the Sheffield Shield ladder. In second spot is Western Australia, third spot Tasmania, fourth spot Queensland, fifth spot Victoria, sixth and cellar dwellers South Australia. Could be having a Dremoyne Oval final, Manners. Yeah, we could be. New South Wales in top form. I, I was watching uh, Monday after or Tuesday afternoon. Western Australia looked like they were going to get smashed by Queensland, but uh, number eight, Cameron Green put on 120-odd not out to back the team to safety so yeah amazing stuff the Sheffield Shield continues to excite he came in number nine actually because there was a night watchman at the oh, yeah. above him he came in at seven for 59 they still trailed and it just looked like the game was lost he belted 121 not out to go with his 87 not out in the first innings and he's a bowler his bowling average is 21.5 he's um he's only 20 years old he's only played nine first class games so you don't want to get too excited about him but 
Um, let's do it. Maybe Australia's found the all-rounder that we've been looking for. The next Shane Watson. Yay! I was preparing for the Sheffield Shield clash, New South Wales and WA, that I'm commentating on next week and thinking Western Australia were going to come here with their tail between their legs after being defeated. But now they've they've saved a game and, uh, you know, second spot on the ladder, they'll be looking to beat New South Wales and uh, close the gap between first and second. A few other performances, I guess, that sort of re- um, affect the test side. Joe Burns made 76. Marcus Harris made 13 and 60. Probably the most important knock was Travis Head made a century for South Australia, a very timely ton. And Nick Maddinson made 69 of 68 balls when uh, Victoria was in trouble. So a few test contenders putting their hand up. Yeah, the Maddinson one was very interesting. He batted at number five. So I, I thought he'd been moved up as an opener, but he's suddenly coming in at, at number five. Yeah, I was a bit surprised about that, but I think it's about team balance because I think uh, Travis Dean came in to the team and he's an opener, so he was opening with Harris. Right, okay. That's the, but I wonder if there's been a direction from the national yeah. selectors that, look, we're probably not going to open with Maddinson, but there's a chance for the middle order. Well, when you get 69 from 68 balls out of a total of 127, so he scored more than half the runs. Uh, and you love it when that happens, don't I, you? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, to be fair... You look, you look aroused. <laughs> well, I always remember Charles Bannerman's getting um, 165 retired hurt in the first Test match, which is to this day the highest percentage. It's like 67%. You, rem- you remember it? I remember it well. A memorable day for you at the SCG? MCG. MCG. 142 years ago. It was, it was great stuff. Now... And if they didn't have such terrible gloves back then, he mightn't have had to retire hurt. But that's that's what I was thinking as well. We've got to calm down about yeah, that. Yeah. But um, but uh, big controversy. Maddinson did have the luxury of batting with the tail, so he just had no choice but to throw the bat. But still, I'm really becoming a big fan of um, Maddinson, and I, I, I hope that he continues to improve. And and I, I'd almost pick him in the first test. I heard him interviewed on the radio last week, and he came across as a, a very thoughtful cricketer that had made a big sort of mental shift since his move from New South Wales to Victoria and he seems to really feel comfortable in his own skin now he's he seems at ease with his game like he's you know he's batting so I think he's well placed to have another crack at test cricket definitely I heard that same interview with Jared Whateley he just sounded very likable as well so yeah I'm, I'm a massive Madison fan now now our women's big bash league update following the third weekend of the WBBL. So that's 23 of the 56 regular season matches have been collected. There are three teams with four wins, the Thunder, the Strikers and the Sixers. But it's a very tight ladder with seven points between first and last place. So Thunder on top, Strikers second, Sixers third, defending champs, the Brisbane Heat fourth, Hobart Hurricanes just outside the top four with five points. It was an interesting article by Ben Horn from the Daily Telegraph um, this week, Paul, where he said that women's cricket is starting to pull a lot of ratings and on the weekend they had an average of 225,000 watching the the Stars v Sixers clash. And, and with this increase in TV ratings, then when the next MOU is negotiated between Cricket Australia and the Players Association, that the, the female cricketers would be in line for a pay rise. Yeah, and it's great uh, that... Cricket Australia is leading the the way in this regard. I I wish that the ICC would turn over the management of the women's game for the world to Cricket Australia, that they have realised that by paying the players more, they're going to get increased professionalism and increased opportunities. If you look at girls throughout the whole history of Australia until recently, 
any girl who showed some sporting talent would have been directed away from cricket because it, you know there would have been no girls' leagues, no future in the game. Suddenly that has changed. We could see women's cricket eventually, a bit like women's tennis, sit uh, alongside in terms of popularity with the male sport. Now imagine if you said to the Tennis Federation, let's uh, reduce women's tennis back to um, almost nothing. They'd be mortified. It's such a money spinner for the game. It's the right thing to do. The ICC has an opportunity to really drive women's cricket forward. They need to copy what Australia is doing. I agree. And it's amazing what the Women's Big Bash League has done to international women's cricket in, in improving standards right around the world. Lisa Stalake, a friend of the show, was quoted in this Ben Horn article and it really illustrates how far the game has come. She writes, she says, I'd retired in 2013. I was the number one contracted player and got $15,000 annually. That's six years ago. Now the figure is $200,000 for a contracted international player. So, I mean, that's just an incredible increase. There is an interesting discussion about whether the men and women should be sort of on equal pay. And CA executive Karina Keisler thinks that although the women athletes are bringing less money to the game, they shouldn't be penalised for decades of underinvestment. Absolutely, yeah. That's kind of to my earlier point that, if throughout all the years that women's cricket has been marginalised, it had been given the same uh, treatment and love as the men's game has, it would be like women's tennis. And um, so let's bring it forward and um, over-invest now to pay back for uh, decades of underinvestment. It's a great point you make, Paul, about CA running women's cricket instead of the ICC. And, yeah, it continues this weekend. There's matches in Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne. So get out there to the Women's Big Bash League. We are going to take a quick break. Then after the break, we're going to have one of the stars of the Women's Big Bash League. She has released a new book called Perspective. Her name is Elise Perry. You might have heard of her. She'll be back after the break. Before that, if you have a moment, can I ask you, please go and rate and review the podcast for me and Paul. It would be great to get some ratings on iTunes or whatever app you listen to the show. And Paul, I would also like to get some listener emails. Uh, You'd be happy to answer some questions or if the listeners have any uh, topics they want us to cover. So if you want to do that, please email us at auscricketpod. That's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. Send that in and we'll answer the questions. We really want to bring the listener mail segment back. All right, let's take a break and then we'll be back with Elise Perry. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm with Paul Dennett, and joining us on the line is the greatest of all time, Elise Perry. Elise, how are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> feeling very flattered. I'm not sure that's quite right, but I'm well, thank you. Well, uh, you, you know, you've just released a fantastic new book called Perspective, and, you know, I've got your stats in front of me. So test batting average of 78. ODI average of 52, T20 average over 30, bowling average of under 20 in tests and T20s, bowling average 152 wickets in ODIs. Your performances are just out of this world. How do you kind of keep them in perspective? Um, oh, look, I, I don't know. I, I suppose I've never really been um, particularly motivated by stats or, yeah, those kinds of numbers. Um, I just really enjoy yeah, the, the, the 
the process of being a part of you know such an amazing team but but also just like the constant challenge of trying to get better at something and working away at it with people that you really enjoy working with so yeah I think that's kind of what probably matters to me more than any kind of numbers. Yeah they're just incredible figures I mean it's almost undisputed now that you're the best ever women's cricketer of all time. Well, I think it's it's very hotly disputed, but um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I don't mean to embarrass you. Um, uh, so, when you were writing the book, did you sort of learn anything? Did you find anything out about yourself? Oh, look, I really enjoyed the process, um, and I, I think sitting down and just writing about different things and um, probably reaffirming like some of the things that are really important to me and that I really value but but also the amazing people along the way that have that have been so um, pivotal in helping me out and like enabling me I guess to do the things that I've loved doing so it was a really nice kind of thing to go through I'm not sure I learnt anything like too different um, but it, it definitely like highlighted the things that are really important to me. Yeah, there was a beautiful story in the book you wrote about your mother that on her day off she would come down to the nets and, and fetch <laughs> balls so you could, you know, hit more balls so you didn't have to waste time getting them. I mean, that's the sort of sacrifice, I guess, that your family probably made to you know, help you get where you are now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I think they did that because they knew how much I enjoyed it and, um, yeah, wanted to, to be successful at it. I think, you know, it was never there their dream that they were living vicariously through me. It was never them pushing me to do it. It was just, yeah, them being so willing and supportive um, of something that I enjoyed doing. And I'll always be forever grateful for that because, yeah, it kind of gave me an amazing platform to, you know, try and be successful at something. Yeah, there's just so many stories like this for you here in professional cricketers that the support they've got from their family. It must have been nice for you to be able to sort of write that down and make it public. Um, oh yeah, in a lot of instances. I mean, hopefully, I've been able to express to them just how grateful I am of everything that they've done for me. But yeah, it's, it's also kind of nice to acknowledge, I guess, more broadly that it certainly hasn't been just yeah me beating away at something. It's been um, a, a tremendous amount of input from a lot of people. You know, not just my parents, but also some really influential coaches and you know, I guess, mentors around stuff. So yeah, it's nice to be able to have an opportunity to. Uh, made that really well known. Yeah, it was interesting you put in the book that the the former Matildas coach, Tom Zamani, was a big influence on your development as an athlete. Uh, yeah, hugely so. I think, um, you know, the way that he led, um, you know, the teams that he coached and I feel very grateful to have been able to, to see that. I think one thing that really stood out to me and has had a lasting impression is the way that he used to treat people and he's always incredibly fair and honest, but yeah, also pretty quick to point out that, you know, in a team environment with uh, however many players and different personalities and situations, you just can't treat people the same all the time. And I think that was a really real and honest conversation for him to have with with a group of players. Um, And just, yeah, it just really stood out to me. Have you taken that into your captaincy, say, for the Sydney Sixers, that kind of attitude? Yeah, I think it's definitely influenced me a little bit, Um, you know, and I guess the way that um, myself and, and Ben Sawyer, the head coach, look at things and talk about things and, and how I guess we um I guess set things up for the team and, and for different players in the team. Yeah, you know, we really care about each one of them as individuals and want to do the right thing by them and um sometimes that means not treating everyone the same and you know, that 
that at the end of the day, if it's going to make people happy and enjoy their experience, and that's really important. Uh, Elise, I was really interested in your chapter on self-belief in your book, and you're talking about that a genuine belief in your own ability sort of at a really, really deep level is um, basically what stops you from giving up. What, what would you say to someone out there who's potentially got self-belief, but they're just not sure? They're, they're trying something to succeed at something. They don't have that bedrock of self-belief yet, and they're not sure whether they genuinely um, are warranted in having it. Um, yeah, like I think there's a really big distinction there between genuine self-belief and, and confidence, um, or the way I see it anyway. I think you know confidence can be fleeting. It can you know it can waver. It can be up and down, and um, you know some days walk out and um, you feel really confident and you feel great about the way you're doing things and you know those days are kind of the easy ones and then other days I suppose don't feel as confident about things but I think fundamentally if you still believe you know at a, at a deep personal level that you are capable of it and whether it, um, it's going to go really well that day or if you're going to do it perfectly or it's going to be easy um, doesn't really matter because um, at some level you know that um, you're capable of doing it you've just got to find different ways sometimes. You also talked a lot about perseverance, and I was interested how you've hit thousands and thousands of sweep shots in the nets. You've enjoyed that process of improving it. Where would you say you are in terms of um, mastering that <laughs> shot? Uh, <laughs> yeah, long way off. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's not a shot that I want to use a lot um, <laughs> to be a bit like cricket jargony, but um, yeah, it's, it would be nice to have it there just as an option, um, particularly if, if, if field settings kind of, yeah mean that it might be a good option but anyway we'll see <laughs> well you've been tearing it up in the wbbl one thing about the book that seemed to come out was that you actually do write a bit you know you have a journal and writing and self-reflection are a sort of part of your daily routine yeah i love writing i've had a notebook for as long as i can remember uh, um i still have a paper diary as well and i yeah i do i like just to be able to sit down for a few minutes um, most days and just yeah put some thoughts down like it's nothing deep and it's nothing particularly um, philosophical or you know amazingly profound it's just you know things that you know, you know sort of in my mind at the time or even just writing down like how how I want to train that day or yeah a particular session or something like that um, I will, yeah I just always enjoyed writing. Do you think when you finish playing you could become a, a cricket columnist and you know, your opinions on cricket would carry a lot of weight more than any other female cricketer in the past. Do you think you could make that transition? <laughs> oh, I've never really thought about it. Um, to be perfectly honest, it's, I don't really watch a lot of cricket and I, I, I think a lot of the things I think about probably aren't really based that much around cricket or the things that I write about. Like, I, I obviously love playing the sport and I love being a part of it. And, you know, I'm a fan, but I'm not... Yeah, I'm not a real analyst of the game, so probably not. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about um, the WBBL this year. You know, it, it's it's a standalone tournament for the first time. How's it going? Uh, yeah, look, I think it's going pretty well. It's been um, a great platform and opportunity for the competition to have its own win window and I guess hopefully continue to, to grow and develop. Um you know, I think um, it's probably not typically a, a really strong window for cricket in the country, but it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, backing off the end of the football season and being able to, um, you know, go straight into cricket and, and have games and um, 
you know, a competition on TV and for people to follow. And, um, yeah, so for the, the WBBL to sort of be given that window and um, responsibility of hopefully providing um, a longer window of cricket um, for fans to watch has been really good. And I think, you know, in terms of broadcast numbers, I think they've been really strong from what I've seen and we've certainly had similar crowds to last year. Yeah, I think it's yeah, hopefully one of those things it's it started well and it'll continue to grow as well. Yeah, it's a really tight ladder at the moment. It seems that the the teams are really evenly matched. Hmm. Yeah, they are. I think the competition's um yeah, incredibly strong. Um it's certainly the you know, the most preeminent T twenty uh, competition for women in the world. The standard's amazing, um, the amount of quality overseas internationals that um, have been attracted to come and play in the WBBL and then also I think the the, the growth in um, depth that we have with our domestic players because of the competition and the chance that they've had to develop has made it just so strong. So there isn't an easy game. Like you don't look at the, the draw and grow, okay, cool, we can sort of bank on that match or this match. Like you honestly don't know um, each team is a different proposition from, from one game to the next and, yeah, you're really wary of everyone. So... I think it's, yeah, in terms of a competition to be involved in as a player, it's certainly the toughest that I've ever played in. And it seems like the standard's really improving all the time, like really quickly. Yeah, really rapidly. And I think that's a direct result of the fact that, you know, it's only been a couple of years that uh, we've been full-time professional at a, at a def, uh, domestic level as well. So, um, yeah, it's really led to this incredible development of the game and um, standards across the board, not just from your top players, but I think, you know, the whole way through, which is um, absolutely brilliant. Do you have a sense of how soon a w, WIPL is going to be created to, to compete with it and would you be keen to play over there? <laughs> yeah, I've got absolutely no sense of whether that's you know, going to happen soon or down the track or, or what. But, oh, look, I think you're talking about the biggest cricket um, populace in the world, uh, the biggest cricket market, you know, probably the most fanatical cricket consumers as well in India. So um, for that to be a reality for for women's cricket would be absolutely incredible. I think, you know, there's enough um, strong evidence and uh, information for the BCCI from the WBBL and the KSL to, to go that, uh, to know that, you know, it's definitely a successful venture to have domestic T20 um, competitions for women. But yeah, when or if they act on that, I don't, I don't really know. On the weekend, on your 29th birthday, you put on 199 opening the batting with your good friend, Elisa Healy. What was it like when you walked off? Was it the whacker and you looked up and saw none for 199? <laughs> uh, I didn't actually look up, to be honest, but uh, it was certainly lovely standing at the other end watching Elisa hit the ball all over the park and um, every now and then I had to run a two for her, but... Um, she was just uh, incredible in the way that she played and certainly to be able to uh, be at the other end and put that kind of partnership together. It was really nice, but I think, um, to, to be fair, in the context of the competition, it was a really important match for us. I don't think many teams have been successful backing up from the game before, um, the day before, and then playing the second game. So for us to have done that was, was really important and, um, yeah, to do it in the way that we did was um was really pleasing and as I said it was just nice to be out there with Mitch. Absolutely it was breathtaking to watch. Well Elise thank you for joining us on the podcast good luck with the rest of the WBBL and congratulations on the book Perspective it's a really interesting read and there's lots of great uh, lessons in there I guess so congratulations and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks thanks for having me on. Great to hear from Elise Perry. Go and get her book, Perspective. We'll be coming back after the break with a social media segment. 
Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. That was Steve Smith trying to suggest to Aaron Finch in the final game against Sri Lanka that given Pat Cummins was on a hat-trick, maybe he'd want to put a slip in and Finch quickly shut it down. I thought it was interesting that shows that Aaron Finch is definitely the undisputed captain of the side. Menas, did you have a concern about that, that they potentially were, were um, going to alter the outcome of the match, the, the, the commentators? Well... I don't have a concern, but it, but it is a broader issue that a couple of years ago in the Big Bash, I think Mark Howard got in trouble for passing on some information to a player on the field that might have affected tactics. And that is a similar thing that Aaron Finch could have changed the field. He, they could have got another wicket. And I don't think it would have changed the outcome of the game, but it's certainly a grey area. And even in all the games, you see these things where the, the fox cam goes up to a player while after a wicket's fallen and they ask them questions. And I don't know, I, I, I do feel it is a very much on the line of what's acceptable. Yeah, I, I agree. And it would have been interesting if they put in three slips and someone's third slip took a catch. But um, it was also interesting just after that that um, they said to Smith, have you ever taken a hat-trick? And he thought, oh, and he kind of considered it and said, maybe it's school days. And I just thought that's an indication of the level of success that he's had. If I'd ever taken a hat-trick, Menas, I would... I would contemplate it every day and I would everyone would know. My local cafe owner would know. I still contemplate the day I was on a hat-trick twice (laughs) and some guy dropped a catch. I've dropped the hat-trick ball once. I just remembered that. You've just raised the very... (laughs) I was at mid-wicket and the pitch was higher than where I was and the batsman... Oh, the excuses are coming. The batsman... Mark Wall. Flicked it off his pads and it probably would have gone to the ground normally, but because I was down lower, it came straight to me and I dropped it. And I just, yeah, that's a, a memory that I'd repressed. Welcome to the social media segment. Now, we'd love to get some interesting pieces of social media from you, the listeners. So if you see something on Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or MySpace or Facebook that is interesting, send it through to us. Send it to us on Twitter at AUS Cricket Pod or Instagram under the same handle. Um, we'd love to, to discuss that on the show. Now, for this first segment, I apologise to anyone who's not from Australia or indeed anyone from New South Wales and Queensland in Australia, as we are, uh, that this is concerning AFL. I've never heard this track before. I'm, I'm sure you haven't. But just recently, there was the Australian Rules Grand Final really? between <laughs> Richmond and Greater Western Sydney. In the lead-up to the Grand Final, there was a great talk about the two teams' um, theme songs and that Richmond is generally regarded as having the best theme song in all of AFL. Here's the Richmond team singing it after they won the Grand Final. And Richmond just recently tweeted out their congratulations to the Netherlands cricket team upon qualifying for next year's World Cup of T20 cricket. Strange little connection, you might have thought, but they then released the video of the Netherlands players singing their team song. Netherlands! 
So there you go, Manners. That was awful. They are not singers at all. That is <laughs> awful. So a strange connection there that the, the Netherlands cricket team has the Richmond... But, but quite seriously, a lot of players from Australia have actually played for the Dutch. Dirk Nannis, Tom Cooper. So one of them might have taken over the Richmond theme song. Yeah, no doubt. Now, um, Or Adam Collins. <laughs> also on social media, Freddie Wilde, a cricket analyst, sent out an interesting tweet about David Warner. It's before the last two games, but he said, David Warner's last 18 T20 innings, and he listed them, 61 not out, 63, 19, 95, 69, 100 not out, 10, 15, 70 not out, 51, 50, 67, 57, 37, 81, 100 not out, 60 not out, and 57 not out. That kind of consistency, while scoring at a strike rate of 144.5, is absurd. Is absurd. What a freak. And I'd add to that that in that period he averaged 88.5. I include this merely to say that Warner attracted enormous criticism for his poor performance in the Ashes. Fair enough. But we should recognise that at the T20 level, he is playing absolutely amazingly. And we might have 10 years of him playing T20 cricket. I think when he retires from the Australian side, whenever that is, he could play easily into his early 40s like Chris Gale has done. I mean, he's very fit. Uh, he's got the game for it. So, yeah, we might see a lot of David Warner around the world. Yeah, definitely. Although I hope that he um, delays his retirement from Test cricket as long as possible. Now, another interesting point. Well, I hope it's an interesting point. During the, the Jury's fi- out. <laughs> during the final game of the Sri Lanka series against, against uh, at the MCG on Friday night, I did what I often do when I'm watching the cricket. I had Twitter up and I was looking at the Twitter trends. Now, the trends, for those of you who don't know, are the topics that are getting the most chatter. The, the chatter about them is really accelerating. And Twitter releases live what's the top 30 or so trending topics. And it was disappointing to me as a massive cricket fan that the the hashtag for the Australia-Sri Lanka game never trended number one during the night. Indeed. What? Indeed. It was regularly... It's our national sport. Well, people would debate that, but it's regularly being beaten by um, the Sydney FC versus Newcastle. That's um, incredible. Trending topic. no one watches the A-League. And also the third-place playoff in the, the rugby between New Zealand and Wales was regularly beating it. So... That concerned me, so I thought, well, let's have... That could be all the Kiwis living in Australia, which is millions of them. (laughs) Yeah, true. So I also thought, well, um, how did things go on the TV ratings? And on TV ratings, two stories are told. Firstly, yes, the cricket is still dominant. 222,000 people nationally watched the Australia-Sri Lanka game versus 25,000 for the A-League and 162,000 for the rugby. So cricket well on top there. But the last time... Australia played Sri Lanka at the MCG in a T20 game. It was the 17th of February 2017, back in the Channel 9 days. So remember I said 222,000 watched it the other night. That night, a couple of years ago, 953,000 people watched it. Now those ratings, if they were obtained just the other day, would have meant it was the third most watched show of the night, as it was. Well, why are they so different? Well, obviously, that taking it off free-to-air and putting it on pay TV just makes an enormous difference. In this country, there are still oodles of people who, when they turn their TV on, it's just on Channel 9. And the idea that you're going to see the cricket... Or it's on free-to-air as generally as well. Yeah, but the idea that you're going to see the cricket incidentally has almost disappeared. You have to seek it out now. And also, two-thirds of households don't have pay TV. So this is not to criticise Foxtel. They've got to just um, 
do what they've got to do. Well, and also they didn't award them the rights. Exactly. They, they, you can criticise who gave them the rights perhaps. My argument is, okay, I think the money's great for cricket. I love Fox cricket, so, you know, I'm a big fan of it. I could watch it all day. But I just think it's a strange thing that in the lead-up to hosting a World Cup, most people in the country aren't going to see that team come together and prepare for the tournament. So next year when we host the T20 World Cup, a lot of punters won't have seen the T20 side play. Yeah, and Steve Smith's innings last night in the old days would have got national media exposure and interest and everyone around the country would have been saying, wow, what an amazing innings. Even people who aren't interested in cricket, it just couldn't have helped escape their notice. Now... Tucked away on pay TV, it's being played, but lots of people aren't aware that it is on. So, yeah, 731,000 fewer people watching it than the than, than last time around. Here's a, to- a side for you, men, is that Crick Info just sent out on... Is this a live update? <laughs> Not quite. Um, what do you think of this side? Uh, this is a T20 side. Chris Gale, Rohit Sharma, Virat Kohli, A.B. de Villiers, Brendan McCullum, M.S. Dhoni, Shahid Afridi, Dwayne Bravo, Rashid Khan... Umar Gull and Lassith Malinga. Good side? Yeah, it sounds good. That is Crick Info's official side of the greatest T20 International 11 ever. And you will notice one glaring omission in there in terms of nationalities. There is not a single Australian. What do you well, think of that? It's outrageous, but considering we've never won the T20 World Cup and we don't often play our best side and, you know, players like Smith and Warner that have done well in domestic T20 20 leagues haven't done that on a regular basis for Australia, I think it's understandable. Umar Gull? Well, I don't know his record off the top of my head, Paul, so I'm not going to argue with it, but it, it's surprising Mitch Stark isn't in there. Yeah, so hopefully Australia can win the World Cup of um, T20. So are you, are you upset about that side? Who would you have in from the Australian past well, or Don, present? Don Bradman. There you go. <laughs> no, I'm not upset. I'm just like, I can understand. I agree with your logic, but it just shows where Australia are a long way behind and hopefully we're about to win the next World Cup. And then the one after that is in one year's time in India in 2021. So two in two years would be pretty good. All right. Well, that's it for the social media segment this week. Remember, send in all your funny photos, funny tweets to Oz Cricket Pod. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Paul is ready for some social media gold. Now, to end this week's show, I've brought back one of my favourite segments. It's called Can't Let It Go, where Paul and I pick one thing from the week's cricket news that we just can't let go of. My one is that I was at the SCG on the weekend, Australia v Pakistan, playing in a T20 game. They took, they had an hour delay because of the rain. Then they came back and bowled, I think, two overs. And then there was a change of innings and they still had a 20-minute innings break when the match referee could have reduced it to 10 minutes. He still kept it at 20 minutes because he wanted to eat. And then after that... The rain came and Australia's innings was 11 balls short of being a full match. So they uh, had to call the game off as a no result. So I just cannot believe that they allowed a 20-minute break. No, I completely agree. And not only that, they'd only been playing for 14 balls before that break because there'd been that first rain delay and Pakistan's innings was was truncated to 15 overs. And so there's 2.2 overs left. Then they have a 20-minute break when they have the discretion to reduce it to 10 minutes. Um, It just... Absolutely ridiculous. People were paying, I think the top ticket bracket was something like $120. Cricket fans have been shortchanged there. And I'd say that no matter, obviously it cost Australia a win, but I'd say that if it didn't cost Australia a win as well. 
Yeah, and you, you know, you go out there with your, your son or your daughter and, you know, you sit there through a break for an hour while it rains. They come back, play for 10 minutes, then there's another break and it's just, just a waste of time. And, and that's these are the times when cricket shoots itself in the foot. Absolutely. They should almost get rid of the – even 10 minutes is almost too long. You could just long. be run off, run on again. Yeah. Right? Five minutes. Exactly. All right, for me, um, what I've been concerned about is that twice now in the, in the recent one in the recent T20s, we've had LBW reviews that have been sent upstairs, and there's been no ball tracking available. What concerns me about this is that if this happened in another country, I would be absolutely livid. I'd be saying amateurish. What are these guys doing? So if it's happening in my own country, I feel that I have to say the same thing. It's also that just no one seems to be bothered. The commentators aren't saying much. It's like, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can't because they work for the organisation. But but you're right; it hasn't been a national outrage, has it? No, it should be. You know, it should be debated. It should in be Parliament. leading the news. Yeah, it should be leading the news. So, but my point is again: what happens in the in the final of the World Cup next year if it's India and Pakistan goes up at the last ball uh, and this then decides the World Cup incorrectly? Then they'll notice about it. Then they'll then they'll take it, pay attention. The first one that you mentioned at the MCG. It was an issue that was out of the control of Fox Cricket. Uh, the, the pitch was way off centre and basically there was a series of circumstances but they couldn't get the cameras in the right spots to have uh, ball tracking available for every ball. Cricket Australia are addressing this matter. The other one at Monica Oval was on an unfortunate human error where I think if you press a button twice, it switches the ends of the ball tracking. So because it was the last ball of the over, it was an unfortunate human error uh, that allowed that to happen. But as you say, they need to sort of work through that before a World Cup final so it couldn't happen again. But I guess what, what really stood out was, and what I was alerted to by Fox Cricket, that this is a greater issue for the ICC. At the moment, the ICC does not handle ball tracking it does not make it available it's all up to the individual networks to have hotspot and ball tracking available if they want to so uh, there's no, there's no um, mandate to actually have it so i think if icc want to have consistent ball tracking available they need to invest in it and not leave it up to domestic tv networks to effectively umpire the game no, I agree. And the TV networks would just say, we're not going to do it anymore. You know, the ICC is not some nebulous organisation. The ICC is the, the cricket playing nations. It's all of us. It's but they have lots of money. Uh, exactly. But they're the ones that are, I'm sure that all the cricket boards, if they wanted to, could say, let's just do this. But they're quite happy to uh, allow the broadcasters to foot the bill. Well, the broadcasters should fight back and say, you know what? Um, you, can get, you can get rid of it. We'll get rid of uh, ball tracking until you guys pay for it. And the broadcaster's argument is they bring in this technology to entertain the viewer. Exactly. Not to umpire the game. Yes. So, yeah, I think, and you were seeing as well this issue of front foot no balls. That should be have a camera on it and be policed by an umpire. There's talk that they might bring that to the IPL. They're the issues that the ICC have to sort out. So, as you say, we don't get to a World Cup final that is marred by a, a poor decision. Absolutely. And that front foot camera should have been in a decade ago. It's um, short-changing viewers that there are so many no balls that lead to wickets. Get the front foot camera in. Uh, for a variety of reasons that would stop the no balls leading to wickets as much and it would be a better experience for everyone. Well, Paul, I think we've come to the end of this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Any messages for the listeners? I don't know if you want to contact me. I'm at the underscore summer underscore game on, on Twitter or send us a tweet at Pod. 
And if you've been just as concerned about the replay situation, get in touch with Paul. He's a friendly uh, man on Twitter to communicate with. You can contact me at Amenas, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S, on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram at Amenas Cricket. Uh, the podcast is Oz Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram. So please get in touch, subscribe to the show, rate and review the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another podcast. See ya. 